Well, we're in a new series uh, in 1 Kings, and we'll get into 2 Kings eventually, going through the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And uh, this series we're calling Faithfulness in a Faithless Age. And last week I spent a lot of time going through the historical context of getting here to this chapter in 1 Kings. And instead of doing that again, I want to tell you a story that reminds me of this time in Israel Back during the Civil War, uh, the son of Abraham Lincoln and one of the cousins in the Lincoln family were sitting around the fireplace in the White House, and the son of Abraham Lincoln held up a picture of his dad, and he said to his cousin, this man is the President of the United States. And the cousin smiled at him and said, no. The President of the United States is Jefferson Davis. Now, if you don't know your history of America, I don't know where you're from, or Jefferson Davis was the uh, President of the Confederacy. Abraham Lincoln was from Kentucky. Even in his own family, even in the White House, there was disagreement about who the President of the United States really was. And that disagreement was representative of a greater disagreement that was across all of the United States at the time. Um where we were not very united, and it threatened to lead us in the wrong path. Very similar to the nation of Israel, this nation in the center of this land where God had called his people out, there were some of the sons of Israel that were saying, we serve Yahweh, we serve the true God. But it was becoming less and less popular for that to be the opinion of most people, the in vogue opinion of the day was not that Yahweh was the true God, it was that Baal was the true God, the God of rain. God of rain, the one who gave uh, rise to agriculture and economic stability. And so there was this tension in the house of Israel. Who is the true God? Who are we going to serve at this time? What do we take from this today into our context? Well, maybe you today are someone who the majority of the time, you would say that the, our God is the one true God, but you have times when, as you're listening to the voices that are out there in our culture that are telling you that to believe in God and to really surrender your life to him and follow him wholeheartedly is just not very in vogue. It's, uh, it's passe. Um, it's, it's a relic of the past. And actually, if you want to be uh, really awake to what's going on in the world, you need to be more open-minded and you need to incorporate other ideas into what you believe. You know, usually you would say, I believe in the one true God, but you have your times when you just kind of wonder if Christians are too narrow-minded like our culture is telling us that we are. Or maybe it's not a struggle that you're having, maybe it's a struggle that your children are having right now. One or more of your children, when they go to school as a Christian, it's a hard, hard place. To be. I led a youth group a couple of weeks ago, and one of the students said, I am the only Christian I know right now in my high school, the only one that I know of that is really trying to follow after Christ, and it's hard. And the threat of being a Christian goes beyond just standing for your beliefs. The threat is that you might lose friendships. Maybe that you won't have any friends would be the fear, and it's hard, and that fear of not being known and having relationships with other people can make us question whether or not we really should follow after Yahweh, follow after 
God. It's very hard. Well, during this time in Israel's history, because the vast majority of people started going the way of Baal, the god of rain, God decided at this time that the best thing that could happen for Israel is to get what they really wanted, to get the god of rain, Baal, as they called it. What God often does when we serve idols, when we go after other gods, is for a season, he allows us to eat or drink of the fruit or the brook of that idol. He allows us, he gives us over for a time to that idol, to that thing that we feel like will really satisfy us in life. And he allows us to associate that, that groaning in our stomachs with this idol that we've been, ser- we've been serving. God removes himself a bit from the situation and says, okay, you can serve that idol, and I want you to know what it's like to really eat the fruit of idolatry. But that's not what God does forever. Even though sometimes, because of our sin, God takes us into famine, God never, ever leaves us there. He never leaves us there. This passage, the good news of the gospel in this passage is that God pursues us in our famine. He pursues us in our famine, and when he pursues us, he pours out grace on helpless people if they will surrender their lives to him in faith. God pursues us in our famines, and he visits us with his grace, helpless people with his grace, so that if we will trust him by faith, we will experience the blessing of God. And so the first point this morning is that God pursues us in our famines. First of all, God pursues Elijah in his famine. So Elijah here is a prophet of God. He takes a stand for God, and he, he speaks out, and he says, Because of your sin, Israel, you will not have rain for three and a half years. They have, don't have rain for three and a half years. And so as a result of that, Jezebel, the, the queen, and Ahab, the king, are not happy with him for saying this. And so they begin to try to kill him. And so God hides him by this brook. And this brook, even though it's a brook that's normally sourced by rainwater, God somehow miraculously keeps the water flowing in this brook so that Elijah has water. He has water for a long time. And the ravens come and they feed him. They feed him bread, and they feed him meat, and he is taken care of in this place. But eventually, that brook runs dry. It runs dry. The famine, this is an important point, the famine which came to Israel because of their sin, collectively, also now is impacting Elijah, even though Elijah didn't do anything in the passage that we can tell that is wrong. I'm not saying he's sinless. But in this passage, he has been faithful to God, but because of the general misery and the brokenness of the world that he lives in, the famine still impacts him. This is an important point, that suffering comes on the unrighteous and the righteous. Sometimes you can be doing what is right. You can be living for God. You can be faithful to God, and you still, because you live in a world that is marked by sin, you can still have times where you experience famine that's not a direct consequence of your sin. Now, you can also experience famine because of a direct consequence of your sin. But either way, either way, God still pursues us 
in famine. It seems like the brook has dried up for Elijah. But the question we need to ask is, has it really? Has it really dried up? Because who is the source of the water in the brook? It's God. It's God himself. Has God's water, has the living water of God himself dried up? Well, of course not. Sometimes when the brook dries up in our lives, it can look like God has changed, that he's not faithful to us. But there's another brook that is coming to you through the God of living water. You just have to listen to the Lord and follow him in that moment. So in this moment, the God who is living water, Elijah is thirsty, obviously. He's obviously hungry as well. And what does God do? God sends Elijah not food or water, but he sends Elijah his word. He sends Elijah his word. Now, in this moment, oftentimes, I'm sure Elijah, maybe at first, was like, seriously? Like, I really, am, I ask for, very specifically in my prayer, food and water. I'm at, can, you, can you not say I'm thirsty and hungry here? But God sends him his word first. God doesn't directly answer the prayer immediately. He says, I want you to follow me and obey me. Now, God's instruction in his word at this time to Elijah must have been incredibly counterintuitive. One of those out-of-body moments because God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. I want you to go to Zarephath. Now, where is Zarephath? Zarephath is about eight miles south of Sidon. Sidon is where Jezebel is from. So God is sending Elijah into Baal's backyard in order to meet the needs of a widow who is, in, in, who is going to meet his needs. This widow is herself starving and without water and food. So this is a very counterintuitive command, and Elijah has a choice. He can either obey God, obey his word, or he cannot. But this is what God has said, and Elijah obeys the Lord. So God meets Elijah in his famine, and now, second of all, God pursues the widow and her son in their famine. So in Elijah's famine, as a hungry and thirsty man, as someone who himself needs the living water of God, he is called out to go to someone else and to tell this other person about, about Yahweh, about the God of living water. He himself, as a needy, as a beggar himself, is going out to tell another beggar, another person who is helpless, about the God of grace, about the living water of God. And that's often how it happens in our lives. I know it happens in my life. Every Sunday I stand up to preach, I'm like, this is the gospel that I need. This is my living water. I need to be filled with this water. And yet I'm called to tell you about the one who is the living water. We are always those who stand in need of the same gospel that we're proclaiming and telling other people about. And this is the way that God works. This is the way that the ministry of the gospel is extended. And so God takes Elijah to Zarephath, not just to provide for his needs, but to provide the need for the needs of this woman and her son who are on the brink of death. Elijah ran out of water. He would have never guessed why. Because God intended for him to be a minister of grace to someone else in another place that he would have never imagined. What can we learn here about the pursuing presence of God? Is God's pursuit of us limited by our economic hardship? It's tempting to believe for us when, when there's a lot of month at the end of the money that God is not faithful to us. When we are down in a financial pit, it is tempting to believe that God is going to leave us there. 
that he doesn't care for us. Or when we're in another kind of pit, perhaps your pit isn't financial. Maybe it's a pit of parenting, and you're just like, I don't know how this is going right now. This does not seem well. It's tempting to believe that God has left the building, that he's left you alone in that situation, but he simply has not. God pursues us in our famines. Maybe it's a famine in your relationships. Maybe you've been wanting a close friend who really understands you for a long time. It's tempting to believe because you don't have that close friend yet that God doesn't care about you. It's just not true. Maybe it's a famine in your marriage. Maybe it's a hard season and you're thinking, God has left us. I am left here and there's no hope. The, the truth of the matter is that God has not left you, that he pursues his people in their famines. Think about our church during the pandemic as we worshiped outside for 19 months. 23 months total, online only and, and outside only, almost two years of not worshiping indoors. It was tempting to believe, I must admit, certain Sundays when I showed up and Joe and I would get ready and Andy, you know, honestly, what is God doing? There was a Sunday, there's actually, sorry, it's a Saturday. We worshiped on Saturdays for a little while at 4 p.m. at Peace in the courtyard, Peace Presbyterian Church. And one Sunday, one Saturday, it started snowing when we were setting up and it was freezing cold and we had to move everything indoors last minute and there were 13 people there. And I was, it's one of those Sundays where I was like, what is God doing? This is, this is great. This, this feels like a famine. This feels like our church is going through a famine. But as I look back on that time now, you never know what the Lord is doing. I sometimes wonder, actually, if that season was actually a feast. If God wasn't feeding us in that place. I think about, Olivia and I were talking the other day. What kind of an impact is that going to have in your own spiritual life, in your children's spiritual life, that we worshiped outdoors, if you were with us at that time, for 19 months? What did our children gather? What did we gather from that about what is worship, about, about how worthy God is of our worship, and how we don't need HVAC units, and, and we don't need, we, we, can, we can move indoors if it rains, and and if it snows, and, and all these kind of things, what did, what did we learn about God and his faithfulness to us? Yes, there was a lot of pain in the midst of that, but the other way of looking at it is that God provided for us manna when we were in the wilderness. God provides and God pursues his people in times of famine. He doesn't just pursue his church in times of famine, he also pursues people outside of the church. What we learn here is that God pursues neighbors and nations in famine. God amazingly is not just focused on the people of Israel, but of all people, God has on his mind a widow and her son who are starving outside of the land of Israel. God sees this famine as a perfect opportunity to show the world that he is not just the God of Israel, but he is the God of the whole world, that he is a God of the nations that he's not just a God of the rich, but he is a God of the poor. And so he sends his gospel out through Elijah to this woman that everybody literally had forgotten about but God. Elijah would have never guessed it, but as he obeys the Lord following the call to Zarephath, he is then blessed by a widow who is outside of the tribe of Israel, a widow who has nothing. And we often find that in ministry. We go and we, we feel like we're being obedient to God 
and we're going to go out in our hunger and in our thirst, we're going to obey God. And what we find is that we feel like we're the ones who are giving the gospel away to someone else, but as we give the gospel away to others, they then give the gospel back to us. It happens all the time. I sp- Olivia and I, when we were younger, it's almost 25 years ago that we moved to China. And I moved there as a 22-year-old, maybe I was even 21, I don't even know. And I moved there because I was compelled, because I wanted to see the gospel go out to the nations. It was all about me giving the gospel out to the Chinese people. But now 25 years later, as I'm in fellowship and relationship with other Chinese brothers and pastors, I find that most often I feel like they're giving the gospel back to me. As we walk through the suffering of the last two years, there were no better models and mentors for me than the Chinese church. For them, suffering is not surprising. In fact, it's necessary for the advancement of the gospel. And so those friendships that I made with Chinese people, some of them long ago, some of them more recent, they have buoyed up my faith in Christ because they have given the gospel back to me. And this is how God works. This is how his grace works. God pursues Elijah, the widow, his church, and the nations in famine, so you can be sure he pursues you also. So first of all, so God pursues in times of famine. Second of all, God promises grace to helpless people. So Elijah, back to the story, he comes across here when he meets the widow as a guy with super low EQ, very low. (laughs) I mean, hey, widow, gathering sticks by the city gate, I would like a glass of water, please. It's been a long journey for me. Hmm, not a great way to start the conversation. But she's nice enough. She's in a culture where women serve men, and she's like, hey, cool, I'm going to go to the well and get you some water. But then as she's on the way, Elijah adds, if you could also bring me some food, that would be nice also. And she's like, okay, happy to bring you some water, but actually not as happy to bring you some food because I only have one meal left for me and my son. The woman says politely, as the Lord your God lives, we're down to our last meal. And so that is where we pick this story up. I want to think more deeply about the widow's situation. She is utterly helpless in the story. First of all, she is helpless as an outsider, as an outsider in terms of the people of God. She's not a part of the, of the covenant community. She's not a part of the community of people in the world at that time who knew the one true God. Uh, she didn't have any friends who knew Jesus. There was no nonprofit sending missionaries to her region, to her town. She was an outsider from a religious and spiritual perspective. No church, no pastor, no friends who know Jesus. She is also helpless financially. She's totally out of resources. The drought had impacted the town to where it was like a ghost town. The fact that she's gathering sticks by the city gate shows just how much of a ghost town it had become. That's not where you normally go to gather fuel for the fire by the city gate. There's no NGO on the ground to distribute food. Her husband had already died, and she was expecting very soon for her and her son to join him in death. She's also helpless spiritually. Notice here that she says, as the Lord your God lives. As the Lord your God lives. This woman is a, she is a a good woman. You can tell 
that she's the kind of person that does the right thing. She's going to serve this, this man that she doesn't know anyway. Um, she's a person who's going to feed her son, and she's going to do everything she can. How long had she been feeding her family by herself? She was a woman who believed in God generally as the Lord your God lives. I believe that your God lives. He's just not my God. And so this is a woman who is um, somewhat religious. She believes in the existence of God. And she is a good person who does the right thing. But in this moment where she is a good human being who does the right thing, it will still end. She is realizing the end of this is still going to be death. Even though she's done the right thing, even though she generally believes in God, she's out of hope. And unless her God becomes Elijah's God, she has no hope after this meal. She is a good woman or a good person without the gospel, and that's not going to be enough here. But consider the grace of God for her and her son. They are outsiders, way outside. Nobody's thinking about them. They have nothing financially. They have no relational network to help them. They, she is lost, but God sees her. Though, though her God, which is probably the Baal, we have to assume, eight miles south of Sidon, though her God, Baal, had failed her, the God of Israel was not going to fail her. Yahweh was not going to fail her, and God saw her in her helplessness. What can we learn here about the faithfulness of God in a faithless age? If you are a Christian now, it is for one reason. It is because God saw you in your helpless place. And he, in your heart, sent his spirit to you, and he sent the word of God to you, and you believed it. There's one reason why you're a Christian. It's because God is a God who promises grace to helpless people. That's the one reason. And as Christians, we can't forget that. Sometimes we can begin to b believe we're better than other people somehow, that we somehow just got it right, that we just think more clearly, that, that we just have the, the, uh, the right understanding. And, and you know what? The only reason why you are who you are if you're a Christian is because the grace of God was visited to you when you were in a helpless place. And that's good news for you if you're a Christian. We can't forget that we were lost and now we're found. But the only reason why that happened is because of God's grace. The second person this is good news for is for the person who's not yet a Christian. The person who feels like they're on the outside looking in. And they're just going, you know what, man, I, I feel like I have tried to live a good life. I, I try to do the right thing. I really do. Um, I generally believe in God, but I'm, I'm recognizing that, man, in my helplessness, my answers are not working. I, I can't satisfy my own soul. Every, every single other thing that I pick and I go after it and I try to serve it, it just visits me with more famine. I'm more and more empty. The good news of the gospel is God loves helpless people. He loves to extend the gospel out and to bring people in to his family. But in order to embrace the grace of God, you first have to admit your weakness. Weakness is a hard thing for us to admit. Culturally, uh, it's, it's kind of abhorrent to say, I'm a weak person. We're told that only the strong survive. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Reach down deep inside you and be strong. You know, whatever. We're all weak and we're all helpless, and we realize it at different moments in our lives. 
And you have to lean into that reality. You are helpless. Your good works and your general belief in God is not going not gonna to get you where you need to go. But God loves you. God loves you, and he brings grace to you. So that's the second thing. God promises grace to helpless people. And the third element in the story is this. We are called to trust God with surrendered faith. We're called to trust God with surrendered faith. So back to the story. Elijah has asked not just for water, but also for food. And she has said, water, yes. Food, probably not uh, at at this point in the story. And at this point of hesitation, this is very important. Elijah says to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, the, flour, the jar of flour will not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. First of all, God made a promise to Elijah. He promised Elijah that I am going to feed you. I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to do it by sending you to this woman. This woman in Zarephath who has nothing, he finds out. And so Elijah has to believe and leverage his faith. It must have been a hard thing to say in some way. I hear you, but listen to the promise. If you will, if you will trust me and make me a little cake before you and your son eat, then your, your, your food will never run out to the end of this famine. So Elijah knows that God has promised him he's going to feed him through this woman. And God's promise to the widow, listen to this, before God tells her or calls her to trust him with everything that she has, he makes a promise, and he always does this for us. God doesn't just call us to follow him. He calls us to follow him, but there are promises attached. If you will follow me, then I will pour out blessings upon you. If you will surrender your life to me, even down to your last meal, if you will surrender to me with real faith, I promise you that my mercy and my grace for you and my provision for you will never run dry until the end of this famine that we are in now, until God returns and brings us safely home. My grace will never run dry, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me down to your life. God's call to surrendered faith always comes with a promise of provision. But for us, it's much different than this woman. This woman had nothing to bank her hope on except for the word of the prophet. That's it. And she obeyed. For us, we have far more confidence in the promises of God than she did. We can look back to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, who already has died on the cross for our sins, already has been raised to life from the empty tomb. We can look back on the life of Christ. We have his blood. We have his life that is given for us, which is far far greater than flour or oil in a jug. We have Jesus himself. And there are promises later in Scripture that are given to us. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, 
he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promises of God attached to the work of Jesus Christ are far greater than the promises that were given, far more clear to the promises given to the woman. And so God says to us, since I have made these promises to you, and since I have already sent my son, I'm calling you to real faith in me. Real faith. I use that word real faith for a reason. I use it on purpose because there have been many who have had an experience where they've raised a hand or they've gone forward in an altar call or maybe they've joined a church at some point in their life. And they, they look back on that moment and they say, yes, I have faith in God. And listen, I'm not saying, like, there can be real faith attached to the hand raising, to the aisle walking, to the church joining, but real faith is not necessarily those things. Real faith is something, there, there is an internal reality that has to be there for that external response to be, to, to carry any weight. There has to be a real internal change. And with God, what he wants is a real internal change in our lives that is marked by an external response. That is real faith. He's saying that inward reality of faith, I want you to follow me externally, and I want you to, to live it out in real life. For this woman, notice the demonstration of real faith in the response of this woman. She believed Elijah, but how do we know? This woman didn't say anything in the passage. She said nothing. What did she do? She obeyed, it says she obeyed the word of Elijah. She didn't say anything as far as we know. She just went and made a cake. She went and made a cake. That was the real demonstration of her faith. You can say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, but do your actions correspond to your words? Now, none of us, it, it doesn't always perfectly correspond, but is there a relationship between your internal faith and your external following of Jesus Christ? God called this woman to bake a cake I don't think that's the response he's calling for me. I don't think any of you, including God, want me to bake you a cake today. I promise you that's not going to be something you're going to enjoy. But God is calling you to something. God is calling you to externally evidence your faith in God as you trust in him. I want you to notice here that she trusted God by faith, and what she was blessed with was a miraculous, consistent provision from God that was daily bread. It was daily bread. This is something that really jumped out to me as I was studying the passage. I've always thought of this as like, whoa, a jar of oil that never, you know, flour and oil never runs out, man. That's incredible. And I'm thinking about like all these like pancakes and like all this, like this incredible, you know, provision from God. Actually, it was, a it was totally am amazing, but it was consistent and it was just enough. No Ziploc bags were needed, no Tupperware. You didn't even need a refrigerator. She had enough. She had enough every day until the famine was over. My question for you and for me is, is that enough for us? Is that enough for you? Daily bread. You know, daily bread is not a very cool topic at the, the office, at the country club, at the soccer field, it's not super cool to be like, you know what, I have just enough for today, just enough, barely, just enough, and I have it every day, and that's enough for me. It's a very, 
I've never been in that conversation, if that's a conversation that's going on. Daily bread. That is not the gospel of Carrie and the suburban triangle. What is, what is told to you about Carrie is this. Uh, if you will serve, if you will work hard and have perfect life balance somehow, if you can attain that, then you can have much more than just enough. You can have way more than enough. In fact, what you need to live for is long-term permanent financial security. And if, you, and if you die before you get to retirement, you need to have all the insurance imaginable to cover any potential negative thing that could happen. We're told that daily bread is not nearly enough. In fact, we're told that daily bread is irresponsible living. We're told that if you really want to be faithful and live without anxiety, you need to have more than enough, maybe even to last beyond your lifetime for your children in the next generation. And that's just not, first of all, that is, a, it is not really a true gospel because as you serve that, you're never going to get what you want. The, the number of people that have so much here, it's like they're listening to this, this deceptive lullaby that if you get all of this, then you'll somehow reach perfect happiness. And I've yet to see it come from money. I've yet to see it come from the perfect balance of hard work and family time. I've yet to see it. But the promise of God here is so much greater for us than the promise of Carrie and the suburban triangle. His promise is this. If you will trust me, if you will trust me, really trust me, then I'll give you what you need every single day for the rest of your life. I'll give you what you need spiritually. I'll give you what you need physically. I'll take care of you if you will trust in me. It's so much better than anything else that we could ever imagine. God's promises and provision are far better than what the triangle offers us. So Jesus has already gone to the cross and to the grave, and his life now flows into us if we will trust him. What does it look like for you today to follow him with faith? What does faith look like for you in your real life today? What does it look like to, in response to God's word, bake a cake? What does it look like? Well, it could look like today uh, that faith in Christ could look like trusting Christ for the first time to forgive your sins. As we were singing this morning, those first few songs, I was just overwhelmed personally up here crying on the front row just how amazed I am again about the gospel of grace that God, that all my sins are forgiven. I've got a number of sins. I'm telling you, it's kind of a long list that all they're forget. They're all forgiven, all of them. That there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus for my sins. The sins I committed a long time ago and the sins I committed this week, yeah, all of them gone. And for you, if you've never trusted Christ, this is good news, and you can take that. It could just look like responding in faith to Christ. Maybe telling someone about it if you do so they can help you. Faith in Christ could look like repenting to your spouse, to your kids, or to your parents. I honestly leaned over this morning to one of my kids and said I was sorry for something that I was convicted about. I'm not saying that. It doesn't, I, I hope that doesn't make me look good. I mean, I, I had gone all the way to almost preaching and still held on to something I was kind of mad about with one of my kids. And it's so freeing to be able to respond to the gospel and say, yeah, I did that wrong. Will you forgive me? Maybe that's what responding looks like for you. Faith in Christ could look like financial surrender. You may be waiting for like perfect financial nirvana or something in order to really be able to be faithful 
to give generously to God's work and his kingdom. And God is saying, you know what I need you, what I want you to do is I want you to follow me by being generous and not being fearful about your money. Even if we are and are entering into a recession, God says, I'm going to take care of you. And finally, faith in Christ could mean obeying God when he calls you, even though you feel like you're in a desperate place yourself. It's so easy when we're in a desperate place to think to ourselves, even when God calls, sorry, God, this just isn't the right time for me. Don't you see me? I'm the one who needs somebody to come to me. And God says, I do see you. So you should go out and tell somebody. You should go out and help somebody. You should go out and use your spiritual gifts. And you'll find as you follow God, that that is his way of showing you how great and how gracious he is to you. We need to get out of our heads, out of our houses, out of our self-centeredness sometimes, and go out and, and love other people. And in that moment, we find that we really do experience the grace of God at work for us. What does it look like for you? This passage is for you. Maybe you're in a famine, and you're just going, I need you, God, right now. God is pursuing you right now. Maybe you're saying, I do feel helpless. Good news, the promises of the gospel are for helpless people. Maybe you're saying, I don't know what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. If you will follow him, if you'll trust him with whatever he puts on your heart and you will walk with him, he will visit you with his amazing provision day after day until he calls you home. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just thank you for the kind of God that you are. I mean, this woman, this widow in Zarephath must have been blown away by how great you are and how gracious you are. That you would see her of all people. And Lord, help us to see ourselves in that woman's experience. Lord, who are we to be loved by you? Who are we? And yet we are loved by you. You do pursue us. You never give up on us. You never leave us dry. You always pour out living water on us when we need you the most. You, you provide consistent provision, daily bread for us every day. You are faithful, God. You're faithful to us in a faithless age, even when we ourselves sometimes are the faithless ones. You remain faithful to us, and so we give you glory, and I pray that we would in response to your grace, respond with real faith in you. Where an internal conviction is matched with an external response to you. Lord, that we would be those whose um, outward life mirrors our inward reality. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name.